0: A discussion with Wayne McFarlane. Welcome to Create with Tripulix. Hey, that's me. This is episode number five. And I hope you enjoy this guest as much as I did. Now, here's that discussion with Wayne McFarlane. So what got you into the writing thing? How many, When was your first book published? And why did, what drives you to write? Well... We,
1: I was CEO of a software company, and we sold that bad boy well, well back. What and kind of that, software? I ran factories and tracked maintenance and did some work for the military and that kind of thing in the oh, sense cool. they bought our software and yeah, managed their tanks with it and whatever. And so I've always loved to read, and I've always loved biographies and memoirs, so I really started focusing my reading on those And I've written a lot over the years, but more on the advertising side, press release side. And I got to tell you, I started reading these memoirs and my God, by and large, they really suck. I mean, (laughs) And, uh, and one of the many reasons they're bad is that they usually start with a rendition of how it was in times gone by. And no one really cares. No one cares. They don't care you used to leave your bike on the lawn and nobody stole it. They don't care. That's not the world we're living in necessarily. And the other thing they do, I found, there was a humorist years ago in the 30s who opined that memoirs consist of the things you ought to have done and leave out all the things you really did do. And so I was reading these memoirs and I thought, that's not the way life works. It, it, it's not some preconceived notion of this is how I'm going to, you know, get from A to B. What it is is you're stumbling around and you step into a swamp thinking you're stepping into a mud bubble. And so I thought, well, I'm going to put together a, mem- mem- a memoir with things like the day we pitched the lone shark and blowing town with the monkey and whatever. And, and, uh, and it got a pretty good response. And, and one of the things it's it's sort of like a blog in writing, kind of like what you're doing, is uh, we're living in a in a Twitter and a more of a blog world now. And it was considered publishing death to do a, a memoir that really was a series of uh, all in one stories in each chapter vignettes kind of tied together. But I thought that's the way life works. So that's what I did. And we got a pretty good response to it. So, um, well,
0: good. If the bar industry comes back, my real income, I had a bunch of bars and restaurants that I supported and that industry is for (laughs) shit now. So, uh, (laughs)
1: well, you know, my position on the virus, I tell everybody who asks me that, you know, the virus, it doesn't care about our politics. It doesn't care what we want. It doesn't care how we want to live. All it cares about is reproducing itself. And if it kills you and me in the process, just go on to the next host. And the more hosts it has, the further it's going to spread. That's been the most amazing thing for me about all this is some people seem to think if they shout loudly enough that the virus is going to hear them. I'm going to hear them. The virus doesn't care. Yeah, you know,
0: the the upside about you and me is we've been in the software world where there's been viruses for a long time. So it's just like, okay, it's another one.
1: Yeah, exactly. And in a way, you know, killing this physical virus is the same, I think, as you and I were used to with a computer virus. You have to isolate it and kill it. That's the way you do it. There's no other way to do it. And uh, or get a vaccine, which is why Norton and Symantec and others are in business. But,
0: yeah, except they're crap. They're crap at even catching it.
1: Oh, it's terrible. It's really a disgrace.
0: The funny thing I've learned over the years on viruses really quick is people notice when they have two. When they have two. Yeah. When they have to when they get the second one, they notice. Because yeah. it runs into the resources of number one, now the computer acts up. They'll run for a year with one.
1: Yeah, oh yeah. Or, you know, especially if it's lurking in the background, waiting it to be triggered to send out spam all over the world or whatever it's doing.
0: Yeah, or transfer cartel money.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Let's hear it for Bitcoins. Made all that a bit easier, right?
0: No, Bitcoin, they're not. The cartels are into MasterCard and Visa cash. Uh, the Russians did the Bitcoin thing. They, uh, If you didn't know, Bitcoin is at a false high and has been there ever since. Oh, yeah. A group of uh, criminals inflated the price by writing a piece of malware that uh, caused Bitcoin to jump about 600%. Wow,
1: is that right? I haven't heard Yeah,
0: of- and it's still... It's gone down about 400%. It's still higher than it should be. Um, And it was because of a criminal gang. The guys got caught, um, but they really caused a real run on Bitcoin and caused an inflationary, a false high. But, you know, people don't follow the market. They don't know any better. So, uh, so you decided to buck the trend. What, where, how are you on social media and getting a following or fans well, locally?
1: Yeah, it's, it's been going well. We just sent out a press release uh, and that got some traction. And, and you know, it's social media, one thing I'm sure you've seen it in software development and it's really true out there. The, the second thing I wrote on upon request by, some folks uh, was talking about the number of, you know, writing a book now is relatively easy. There's the software and there's word processing and you can self publish on Amazon and do all these things. And out there are legions of people scamming you about, you know, for only a few hundred or a few thousand or how high is up we'll, take your book and make it a bestseller and do this and do that. It's just legions of of people now feeding off the self-publishing craze. And particularly as people my age mature, if you will, you know, we all become convinced that, that everybody wanted to hear. We milk cows at five in the morning. No one wants to hear it, but you know, the more you move along life's path, I think the more you believe people want to hear it. And in most cases, no. (laughs) People don't want to hear it. They want to hear about, um, you know, the time you you drove your your car into a lake maybe, but they don't want to hear about milking the cows. And so there's a whole huge group of people out there writing these (laughs) memoirs and biographies and stuff that just are, you start reading them and it's like the scene from that old movie where this guy was talking and his audience were pouring gasoline on themselves. So he light themselves on fire. It was so boring, you know? So that's, that's like where we are. It's really a shame because it's, a,
0: but scams are everywhere. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, if you want your book to be a New York Times bestseller, Oh, I'd hate
1: that.
0: You can cer- <laughs> you can certainly do that. Yeah. Um, you need to sell um, uh, eighty thousand books in the first year, and if you have the money, <laughs> and you go through a distribution,
1: yeah, and true. this
0: is the way that it's done, yeah you go through distribution which means that you go through a publishing company you give the publishing company the price of 80,000 books and have them delivered to a warehouse
1: <laughs>
0: and now you're on the New York Times best selling list oh so
1: young so cynical you
0: yeah. know that's the way it works if you want your book at the airport yeah. um There's a company in Austin, Texas. I'm not going to give them a plug. Um, But if you reach out to me, you got my phone number. If you want your book at airports, it's about uh, $2,500 a week per airport. And that's how much book placement costs. That's a for profit business. Of course. There are a few of the publishers that have bought um, the front table for many years in advance. And they're given the right to put other authors that they have on the shelves. Yeah. But they only put one or two copies at each place. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, everything is about the dollar. And do you know who Ed Sheehan is? Ed Sheehan? Yeah. Yeah. I recommend that you look him up and read all about him. Yeah. And another one um, that you should read about is read about the history of Charles Dickens.
1: He had his moments, didn't he? I mean, he really did.
0: He had his moments. Um, he really did to repeat you, but, um, what a lot of people don't realize is his uh, Christmas story that everybody celebrates. Yeah, It's a self-published book.
1: That's right. And it almost didn't get out on time because he was so uh, concerned about the quality of the paper and the illustration. Well, it was
0: self-published. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean... At and the, time, the old system. Um, the so you can, you can make it. Yeah. You can make it. There are some bumps and there are some big boys out there that do make claims of things and they do fulfill them, but they're expensive. Yeah. Um,
1: and, you know, the other thing I tell people, is just like with your, your blog and what you're doing here, you know, you cut it together so it's interesting. Uh, you know, for, for self-publishing, you want to get traction. Dickens is a great example. When it all is said and done, you have to have something worth reading.
0: I mean... No, actually, all said and done, you need a customer.
1: (laughs) Oh, true. And they have to, like you pointed out, (laughs) yes, and as you pointed out, they have to want to buy.
0: Yes, they want to buy. They have to want to buy and they need to want to buy your work because of a reason, either prior track record with you, who you've known. If you look at those that make the news, people that are famous and you think about the famous, how did they get to be famous?
1: You just like the Kardashian women. Now, come on, admit it.
0: I, Know how they got to be famous as well, but being pretty does help.
1: (laughs) It certainly does.
0: But there are two traits. One is having advanced degrees so that you can be called an expert. And the other way of expertise is doing time in a prison, preferably a federal one. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the educational part and, and that pretty much <laughs> leaves the rest of us out, yeah, well, there's an old saying
1: out there that that beauty may be skin deep but stupid goes to the bone, yeah, so a lot of these folks who are very famous out there, they're not stupid people, no, it, they're not it's like the old you know, i don't even if you know if you know who this is but the singer Linda Ronstadt. uh met her a few times, quite a character. But she studied opera, mm-hmm. and she was a huge, one of the biggest rock and roll stars and divas ever. And her training was classical. Same thing with Stang and some others. So it's, it's Billy Joel took classical music training. So, you know, to your point, you're exactly right. I think the image a lot of people like to push out there is, hey, I'm just a regular <laughs> I'm just a a regular person here dressing in tight clothing. But, you know, I was just walking along and suddenly here I am famous. No, No, it doesn't happen like that. I don't believe it does anyway.
0: Yeah, well, there's, um, there's that and then there's the Joe Blow that wants to be something, drives to be something and can never seem to be that thing. But then again, they don't really try at it. They just say that Remember they Joe do. Joe the
1: plumber <laughs> in a political campaign. There's a sterling example right there.
0: Well, that that got him some got him some fame. Got him his business uh, investigated by the IRS because it created <laughs> political enemies that very yeah. far up.
1: Yeah, Joe the plumber. Yeah, it's just. But the other thing too is that if you're putting yourself out there, like with your blog or other things, you just don't know what's going to happen. And people ask me about some of the things I wrote about. And, and my position is, look, yesterday's disaster is today's great story. I mean, it's... <laughs> and so you got to have a sense of humor about it if you can. Sure. But we were uh, uh, commissioned. I had a little production company. And to do uh, special text for the opening of the Hollywood sign, you know, run some lasers in the snout when they redid it. So we went up there and it never drizzles in California, but it drizzled that day. And as you probably know, lasers don't like that. So we had 10 grand oh, worth of lashes, well, like 20 grand worth of borrowed lasers. I didn't have any money. And so the, the sweep blew them up live to a third of the country as the TV cameras rolled, right? My wife and I were just married, and at the end of the fiasco, we were sitting up the Hollywood sign, and I said, well, we just blew it in front of, you know, 15 million people or so, and there will be another 15 on tape delay. So we uh, – but I said, hey, tomorrow we get paid, right, from the production company. So the next day I called them, and I said, I want to come down and get our check. And again, guy went answered the phone said, well, good luck. They just went bankrupt. And – I swear to you, I was sitting at my desk with my head in my hands. I thought, you know, I I don't recall if I was weeping, but probably. And my wife comes in and grabs my elbow and said, you've got got to see this. And she had a copy of the LA Times. And there was this huge, favorable, shrieking review about us. The laser light flashing over the Hollywood sign, blah, blah. And what happened was the whole crew and the reporters, as soon as it started to sleep, I mean, it was sleeping, right? Went to the trailer where there was an open bar, and everybody got hammered. And so when the finale came and they ballyhooed the sign with searchlights, they thought it was our lasers, right? (laughs) And so we got the greatest review I ever got in my life over something that we didn't do, and it was done by the bankrupt company that hired us. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, so you just don't know. You don't know. Yeah,
0: the, uh, yeah the, uh, the news is generally never um, never what you've what you seen. But um, one of the things that you can do, too, is when you're doing pitches, I told you about write the word pitch in the subject. Yeah. Make it very obvious what the person is that's going to open that email what to expect. Or to open the email because they're looking for topics for their their thing. But yep. see if you can find things too that tie into things around the calendar year.
1: Hmm. That's interesting.
0: And think about it ahead of time.
1: Yeah.
0: And actually write them on a calendar. If you get an old paper calendar that's got uh, bigger days or something so that you can... For a couple
1: of tech guys. We're talking about paper?
0: Yep. Do it on paper. Um, the reason is that um, when you do it on a computer system or whatever, you got to remember. And if it's already printed, it's in front of you. Kind of like me forgetting to put the little thing at on the uh, thing. It says... Make the person talk. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, uh, is this a point where I can do a completely shameless plug for my book?
0: Yeah, you can do a shameless plug for your book. I'm going to do a shameless plug for your book in the, uh, in the video thing, which will have more of an impact. But sure, you can plug your book. Go for it. My,
1: shame, my shameless plug. Thank you. My shameless plug is the book is Tales from the Day available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble and every decent bookstore and Roach Coat seller anywhere in the world. So there you go.
0: Cool. Yeah. So you signed up with Ingram. I did. Yep. That'll, that's how you get there.
1: Yeah. Ingram, Ingram Micro, uh, for those who don't know, clearly you do, which is, you're probably one of, to other people who know who they are you know they're the biggest in the world and if you're in publishing they're the ones that distribute the books to the bookstores and do all that that's
0: very true amazon is making a run for that um and having the thing about the thing about publishing is having ingram to print your books to send them to you buy the box so you, you figure out how many go in a case and you do that through the shipping calculator and you buy a case at a time to send to you for you to sell. I have yet to sell one at, at one <laughs> of my books through anybody in distribution. Yeah. I have sold them on Amazon. I have sold audiobooks um, through um, other vendors Uh um, and get your book into audiobook.
1: Yeah, it is in audiobook now, so we'll see what
0: that goes. That that helps you a lot. You'll you'll find that um, my book, I've sold a lot of my books, but I sell them myself. Uh, I sell them out of my backpack um, and that selling them out of my backpack. I'll tell you then the downside that most of the people that write books, because like you said, everybody's writing one, the average sells one book. Well, they sell a hundred books yeah, their entire life to their family that's, yeah, and friends. That's correct. And if you follow Steve Cranfield,
1: I don't. That's who
0: anything. was on the Soul Chicken Soup for the Soul series. Oh, yeah. He um, sold his books to large distribution by calling them up and pitching them just like you pitch a producer.
1: Mm.
0: So he called the buyers from everywhere. And you can find out who the buyers are for every distribution company there are. And pitch them. And he was a nice guy on the phone. People liked him. Start out with a joke when you're on a phone call if you can. And talk them up. And you don't pitch, you know that. You're like, hey, I got this thing. I'd like for you to stock it in inventory. It's the best thing since ice cream. They hear that all the time. So um, that's how he got to sell his first set of books. He did that himself. He did delivery. They took delivery on those themselves. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I hadn't I hadn't heard that. I've heard of the book, and sure. the other one who did that uh, was a guy who wrote Tuesdays with Maury, and which is, you know, kind of kind of a moving piece. But at first, it just didn't go anywhere, and he started pushing it himself, and it took off. You don't, you know, you don't know. Probably for every book like that that you know really catches fire, you're right. It requires. Usually requires the author to really get down there in the weeds, and what what I I don't know about you, but what I think most people have a vision of when they write a book is I'm going to write that bad boy and get you know turned down by, hundred or so agents. That that's for my later bio, and then it'll get out there because some visionary will decide to do it, and the royalties come rolling in, and I'll be wearing a beret and a long scarf and saying you know pithy things and, and, and it'll be great. It doesn't work like that.
0: No, it doesn't. The book industry changed quite a few years ago, but basically what the book industry is interested in is um, making $30,000 deals.
1: Yeah, it's really the, really the money and they, they can't spend the time on what they do as small deals.
0: Well no, that's what they do. They do a series of $30,000 deals. They they'll make a uh, most of the people that um the people that write uh books that are uh PhDs that have classes that require them uh their students to buy the book.
1: My ultimate dream. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly how they uh how they get the book deal. The agent is really not that hard to get. Um, I've had an agent. I'll tell you a story real quick. I went to the book expo in New York city Yeah, and I hadn't written a book yet. I had an agent and a nonfiction book and was thinking about writing a novel and things weren't progressing very well with the agent in the pitch and the process there. So I go to the book expo and I get told about Ingram and, but there's another division besides Ingram spark and that's Ingram, yeah. the company. Yep. Yeah. And the, uh, the, I got told about him, them beforehand. So I went there looking for them and I found, the Ingram guy and he's in a downstairs meeting room. That's a giant room that would hold 250 people or 300 people. And he's got one round table at the far end. The rest of the room is empty except for the line that is against the wall out the door and then out the hall all the way to the escalator. Yeah. And that's where I got on. And when I got to the door, um, I'm watching him have his, you know, meeting with the person and uh, go over things. He took his time with each person. Very nice, meticulous guy. And occasionally you'd see him write a note. And, you know, I'm standing between a couple people and I'm like, looked at the guy behind me, and I said, look, I don't know about you, but I want a coffee. I'm dragging my ass. I got up early. I'll buy you one. Hold my place in line. Perfect. And he said, no, I don't want a coffee, but I'll hold your place. I said, okay. And I looked over at the guy, and the person that was next was farting around with their phone. and. I see the person walking away. So I went across diagonal in that room and went directly to him and said, look, I'm all the way back at that door, but I'm going to go get a coffee. Would you like one? He said, God, yeah, I'd love one. I said, I'm going to go to Starbucks. What do you want? So I go to Starbucks. I get back and my place had moved up about three places. And when I got back, I walked past and put the coffee on the table for the guy without interrupting him, and then got back back in line and when we got when I got to my meeting with him, um I told him he said, "What are you here for?" And I told him that my plan of doing things and he said. Um, what you want to do is you want to hook up with this guy named, uh, Scott Greenleaf. He's got a production company out of Austin, Texas. Here's a cell phone number. Tell Scott that I gave you, and here's my card. So you don't forget my name. I told you to call. And I thanked him, and I left, and I gave Scott a call the next day.
1: Well, the coffee bribe is a good one. You know, New York, going to New York taught me, it inspired me for another bribe, which has never failed me. So now, for the first time ever, I shall reveal to you the perfect bribe to get you into a very popular restaurant. Sure. So we were in New York, my wife and I, and there was this restaurant of the moment. And a lion outside, just like you were talking about, right? And There were probably, I don't know, a couple dozen tables inside. And maitre d's who had this, this look, you know, this kind of this down their nose, sort of whatever. And I looked at the line and I thought, my God, you know, Blackbird, bye-bye. The Great White Way will be here till the morning, you know. And so <laughs> I did the same thing you did, only with money. So I went to the maitre D. And part of their deal was they didn't accept any, you know, gratuities or anything like that. So they were all, and because they didn't want people to feel that they could bribe their way to the front, which is exactly what I wanted to do. So I went to the Major D and I said, look, you know, we're in a little bit of a rush. Do you think you could ask, I know you have a reservation list, the next person on the reservation list, if they'll take this $50 to let us, you know, go before them. D, <laughs> looked at me yes sir took that 50 bucks and it was <laughs> 10 minutes later that we were uh that we were uh seated at a table and i guarantee you the first person in line never saw that <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> it was that's, it was a thing of beauty yeah no that's cool that's cool i um i'm a foodie i like i like uh like stuff. I don't know how that's going to be, but uh I do like like that. New York City has a lot of fine places. Yeah. But uh I think the best French restaurant I've ever been to was in Muncie, Indiana.
1: Muncie. What yeah. in God's name were you doing in
0: Muncie? Oh I uh, I did uh work for a Uh, software development company that sold software to job shops and machine shops. Yeah. But little guys, no more. I think the cap on the employee base had to be 500 or a thousand people maximum in the entire facility.
1: Yeah. There's hundreds and hundreds or thousands of them as compared to a handful of the really big ones. So you got a bigger market.
0: Yeah, they they uh they're still in existence, and they're um they're pretty much a still a leader. I'm sure they're in their in a newer version of their software and things. Um, my background was uh, net real network engineering, and I turned it into the industrial market where things just people don't understand networking and why. Um, it Even doesn't yet? yeah, yeah, you no, you don't get a network near a uh a, a welder that welds aluminum
1: <laughs> ah, the tip for the day
0: <laughs> what's really funny is when you hit an arc with the aluminum, you can go back at the switch, which is like a quarter mile away, and watch the lights on it all. Buzz at the same rate.
1: <laughs> Wisp of smoke coming up, yeah. yeah. And put
0: wire ties up.
1: Well, I will tell you that when we moved here to Colorado from L.A., they had some truly spectacular storms here. And so... Where are you? I'm in the Colorado Springs, but we were in okay. LA for many, many years. So we moved into our house here and we had a couple of big lightning storms and I looked at my wife and I, I mansplained that I knew how to do this and I would ground, you know, all of the computers and all this stuff. So I put in a whole bunch of stuff, UL rated that, you know, you could, you could hit it with uh, the flash and it wouldn't, none would happen to it. First big thunderstorm rolled in, a lightning strike right outside of our house. And I'm telling you, it fried everything, everything, the computers, the TVs, fried it, fried it all. And I thought, well, you know, competing with go, putting Hewlett Packard against Mother Nature, HP is gonna lose every time. So yeah. It's uh, and a lot of it like you were talking about is just knowing what to do. Well, that's a you know. So that's a good story. Muncie, Indiana, for God's sake.
0: Yeah, well, they were an aluminum aluminum casting company that made Frames for the uh, uh, paintball people.
1: As well they should.
0: Um, and uh, they made the their whole specialty. That's pretty much all they made. They made some car parts too, but the car parts were a small part. Yeah. Uh, it was primarily that they were running their casting operation to cast um, paintball guns.
1: Boy, that was huge for a while, wasn't it? That's kind of died down a little bit now the
0: painful thing. It, it, it we're older yeah. so Speak <laughs> for yourself they <laughs> die down because of our life it's funny <laughs> how much things change as i get older
1: <laughs> yeah well you just wait you know you just wait
0: <laughs>
1: trust me on that one
0: yeah the uh now the the whole the whole thing that we do as we try to progress is that we tend to believe that everybody I like in this virus thing, how I had all of the people in my local community that I relate to believing that the rest of the the United States was like the community that I live in. No. And I was protesting like you wouldn't believe it. It's like, I've been to these places. It ain't the same everywhere. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, we had our software company. I'm originally from South Dakota. And, I mean, we were tucking. I mean, bright red there. and But I thought, well, we got to open tech support, so I'll open little centers in these small towns. They need the work. The Internet's strong enough there we can do it. Um, and, um, boy, you go work. You're right. You go work in Indiana or South Dakota or Iowa for a while. And you'll find out that, you know, it may be flyover country, but there's natives living down there that are very, very, very different than we're used to. I don't know where you are. Are you on one of the coasts? Or
0: I'm on. I'm in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah I
1: love it out there. You know, we. I lived for a while in Brooklyn, in Boston, and uh, it's. Uh, Jimmy's on the ice cream and drinking from bubblers. You know, it's just the. The East Coast
0: State. Yeah, but I'll tell you, I'd rather have the Midwest um, United Dairy Farmers ice cream than I would any other.
1: <laughs> you, you just have been banned from ever buying a, a carton of Cherry Garcia ever again.
0: That's all right. I'll pass. I'll take, you know, um, it was founded by Carl Lindner, who I think owns Chiquita Bananas still. Uh-huh. And he made his money some of his money off of ice cream and he did it right it is really if you ever get a chance to go near um, Cincinnati Columbus Dayton Lexington uh, it's in that corridor and
1: I I am just gratified to hear you're helping that lad make money by buying his ice cream
0: you know (laughs) it's really good stuff yeah I'm what i get up here is not although there there is a good really uh a good one i used to take my kid to in florida but uh i like i like uh i i really enjoy good ice cream that thing that the uh the vermont guys the um that do the trending thing that sold out to conglomerates and now put preservatives in their stuff Uh, what's her Ben and Jerry's? Yeah, that's just this weirdness. It's not good. It's just weird.
1: That's what I was talking about with Cherry Garcia. Yeah, been banned for life. You're done.
0: Yeah, that's all right. It's it's just it's not good. It's just weird. And you know, we take that with any kind of product. If you don't, if you don't keep the quality. And make the quality the best you can every single time. Your customers will notice and they'll go somewhere else.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's before when Ben and Jerry's were at their heyday and they were all natural and they were doing the thing. And you remember how popular they were. Of
0: course. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And there's a story about them, the big ice cream producers. Uh, I remember it was, it was led by one. Anyway, they went to the, all, their grocery stores and literally, I mean, forbade them from putting Ben and and Jerry's on their shelf. And they were small at the time. So you get somebody like Bluebell or somebody coming in and saying, you know those eight refrigerators and we're all filled with our product? Well, we're going to yank it all if you don't take these little guys off the shelf." right? So customers started shrieking, and Ben and Jerry's went around to all the grocery stores personally and then listed the ones who would not list their ice cream, and they saved the day. The uproar grew so enormous that the, the stores just said, look, we don't need the trouble, you know. So, uh, so, yeah, it can be done. But as you were pointing out, it takes – we all, you know, have this dream of starting to sell books out of our garage like, like our friend at Amazon, Basil's. Uh, but the really reality of it is there's no easy button.
0: Well, Bezos got the easy button. Well, we, I like to think so. No, he really did. He, he ran a f- and still runs a failed business, book business. Oh, yeah. They,
1: just, they, they didn't make money for years and years and years.
0: You know what made them money was they made a contract because they were in the software business. They used virtualization, and they virtually...
1: Yeah, aren't they, the Amazon cloud, they're still number one,
0: aren't they? I mean, they're still- Yeah, well, they ought to be number one because they got the old MCI network and for pennies on the dollar when MCI went under. Yeah. And used DOD money to do it on a contract for the government and built the cloud out across data centers and then became the competitor for- what the irony is, they became the competitor for Walmart up until the virus.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the, the the genius of the of the Amazon cloud was, in my view, not so much building it, although that was its own thing. But it was whoever sat down. I don't think it was Bezos, but whoever was running that sat down and said, "Hey, to have the capacity we need for ourselves." We have to build something where we're only going to use twenty percent of it, or whatever. So all this other capacity is out there. We can sell that. That was the that was deciding to bottle Coca Cola right there. And I remember when they first started doing that, we were doing a lot of a lot of work, and some of our customers wanted cloud-based stuff. Um, you'll laugh about this. Microsoft hired us at one point to run some surveys. About the cloud, you know the Microsoft Cloud products, when they were shifting over their software and all that, so we're we're checking with business owners and whatever, and probably two thirds of the time we'd call up and you know talk to them about the Microsoft products, and it's all cloud based or whatever and two thirds of the time there'd be this pause, and some CEO would say, "God, it sounds great. You want if I ask you something what's the cloud so." <laughs> So he got back to my son and said, "Look, your marketing—you're a little bit ahead of yourself here. You first got to explain to people why they should be in the cloud and how their data is protected. Then sell your products, right?" Yeah, no,
0: I—I—I I, I went to Comdex for many years. And yeah, I did too. Yeah, so it. yeah. Yeah, so uh, I remember when they were trying to sell the cloud. Everybody was trying to sell the cloud. But they were trying to sell the cloud as a way to move. They wanted to get rid of Baltic and go to Park Place on Monopoly. Mm -hmm. And if nobody knows what I'm talking about, there's... (laughs) That's kind
1: of unkind, don't you think?
0: There's two different ways that you can buy and sell a product. You can sell a product and once you sell it, you have to make another one or you can make a product and then rent it to somebody. And when they're not using it anymore, you can sell it again. In fact, using the cloud, you only need to make it once and you can rent it over and over and over again because you only need to make it once.
1: Yep, that's so the it's the
0: ultimate, it's the ultimate, um, and that was the cloud. That was what Hewitt Packard and Microsoft were pushing for about a decade before Amazon ended up quartering and turning the cloud into a commonplace.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Microsoft, lost billions on their first foray to really do that, but on premise. Now you probably know about that when they were trying to get everybody to be using dumb terminals and then have all the software, which they would rent.
0: Yeah. The, now now the, they're doing the, it with 365. They turned it around.
1: Yeah, yeah. And now it's all being done out of the cloud. But at the time, uh, you remember the mutiny, all the executives and people were buying well, their own little you know, PPs. The whole
0: thing is, you know, the whole thing is people don't understand distributed computing yes. and and the model that we went the reason that we went away from distributed computing model. We went where the hardware was cheaper. And right now, you know, I'm in I'm doing something, I'll give you an example of the ingenuity because everybody's cloud based. There's this piece of software out there that I can get that I got for free called Open Broadcast. Um, Free is good. I like free. And what it does is it is an incredible framework that competes with the stuff that CBS and NBC have. And it's produced for the game guys the guys that play video games. I mean, that's <laughs> literally what it's made for. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's great. And, you know, I remember, the f- I don't want to stumble down nostalgia road here, but when things, ser- servers got virtual and all that, I remember the first time we had a huge virtual server for some of the stuff we were doing. And we needed another one. And I thought, oh, God. So I called the company involved, and I said, I need another virtual server, same size, maybe a little bigger. How long will it take? And they said, well, probably 15 minutes. And <laughs> I'm looking at the phone, and I said, what's this going to cost? And they said, something like an extra 50 bucks a month. And I thought, the millennium has arrived. I mean, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh yeah, that, that was just because I was used to paying, writing checks for, well, you know, thousands of dollars for hardware to in sure. people's offices. And it just went away. You remember, just overnight, it just went away.
0: Do you have an AWS box?
1: Uh, do not. Uh, I'm on Apple right now.
0: No, you can rent. Um, you can get an AWS uh, server from Amazon for free. Free is uh, good. Uh, for a year. Really? Wow. Just do a Google search for it and you'll find it.
1: Wow. That's, you know, my needs for a server anymore are pretty, pretty late since we sold our company. But, uh, but that is, it's, it's I run,
0: I run stuff that I do on internet. Like I was looking for a, a series of bots that I found on running off of Twitter because Microsoft, they're running on Twitter, but, Microsoft wrote a bot program. Bots don't necessarily mean bad things. Um, they can,
1: though, but, not but
0: they, they can, and they often are, and what people are talking about uh, Russian bots are actually Amer- a lot of them are American bots. Um, because Microsoft built a bot programming language into Azure. So if you Rent space, web space from Microsoft, running on Azure. You automatically have a Twitter bot that you can install and run right off of that web interface.
1: I love when was it Microsoft or Apple who released a bot out there in the world that was supposedly would learn it was AI, and so if you wanted to learn whatever you wanted to learn, then it could become. More coherent to, for you to use your business all the time, and you remember the bot got racist oh racist. yeah, well,
0: no that was um that was Microsoft was that Microsoft and, yeah they put I mean, it, it was, it they put horrible. it on the on yeah. twitter
1: yeah, did, yeah, it was horrible, but it was funny yeah you know? yeah I, I mean it went out there, and there's so much conspiracy theory Hitler lives stuff out there that does innocent little AI bot started picking all this up you know it was just a
0: well a lot of the, lot of the from my own experience and in getting involved with the Twitter thing has really opened my eyes to where the stories of conspiracy actually emanate and come from yeah there's <laughs> and they're not people not innocent people you got this, you said you had another book. What was your first book?
1: Well, the first one was Tales from the Day. And the next book was called You're an Author, Don't Get Hustled. Okay. And I wrote that about uh, my experience with my first publishing thing and getting a publisher and having to fire them just like you did with your agent and, and all the scams and things that are out there. And um, And fortunately, it's been pretty well received, but there's a lot of people – doing self-publishing and they're just victims. I mean, it's like you're well-dressed driving your Mercedes through a bad part of town. I mean, when you're, you're trying to get out there and, and the representation that people make, you've probably seen all of them. Being, oh,
0: I've seen tons.
1: Yeah. About how they're going to help you do this and help you do that. And for a few dollars or $600 for a course or whatever, that, you're going to be on the bestseller list and just scam after scam after scam. And so I wrote a little book about it and it got really great reviews except for one. Somebody really trolled me. You know, it was the first time it happened and it was pretty clear to me they had read the opening of the book, you know, on Amazon, you can read the first chapter or two. So all there's stuff, they were shrieking about things in those first couple of chapters and I thought, yeah, they read the book, you know, but it it was the first trolling that I had got and it was, you know, it was pretty brutal. It looks like Amazon's going to take it down, but, uh, um, but yeah, that was my, that was my, uh, my second book. And I'm just starting to publicize that now, but tales from the day is my, that's my, my baby. I like that one a lot. I just hope the audience likes it, you know, but I don't know. I, you know, it sounds like you write about things that you know, which really is, the key to it. Uh so many of these scams online talk about, well just find a subject that's popular, like self actualization or doing a combination of yoga and zen and crank out some little pot boiler about it like a penny dreadful and and then publicize it on Amazon you'll make all this money. Maybe you will. I don't know. But uh all I know is that my view of writing is is you gotta be a writer. Yeah. You know, if your if your goal is just to crank out, you know, something about whatever the latest conspiracy theory is, or whatever, I I view that as exploitation. I don't view it as writing. Yes, I suppose my view is skewed, but hey, you know, I am what I am. So, so that's that's the name of that tune. I have to say, I've been enjoying the progress a lot. Met a lot of people through well, yourself and others that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And I find that people who are doing stuff are doing blogs and they're doing, I mean, people who are doing things.
0: Yeah. And in and, and keeping the audience and um, interacting with people that yeah. interact with you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, uh, and I will look at that, your recommendation um, from what that lady had to say. I know that, you know, I was raised in a small, white bread community in the Midwest. And I never, I mean, it was just not an issue. There were no minority people around. I mean, it was something you just never and all the civil rights stuff hit and three lily white fraternity brothers of mine and I got in a car to go get drunk in New Orleans and we made it as far as Arkansas until the Klan pulled us over and shot the hell out of us one night. Wow. And, yeah, and it changed. They thought, well, they thought we were down there to register voters. And, you know, it changed my, my view of stuff like that forever. So I sure. can imagine this lady saying, hey, I've been black my whole life. You know, don't, don't talk to me about racism. I've lived it.
0: You know? So what happened when you were in uh, Arkansas?
1: Well, we, what do you do when you're a good Midwestern boy and you get shot, right? You report it to the police. So it they was,
0: shoot at the car, or they shoot no, you? they or shot what?
1: me. I got shot, and a friend of mine got
0: shot. Wow. From yeah. a distance, like you were driving by, and they shot no, you?
1: what happened was uh, we were, had to be God, 3, 4 in the morning out in the sticks in Arkansas. I was heading down to Louisiana, and this car pulled up behind us, and big spotlights, you know, and we thought, well, maybe it's the cops. So we pulled over, and everybody just sat there for a while. And we finally thought, wait, you know, there's no red lights. There's no, this is just crap. So we started to pull away, and they opened up on us. And uh, I remember um, it knocked me a little loopy, and, okay, I'll make another admission here on your, on your blog, something I am, have been embarrassed about since the moment it happened. But I, till that time, always thought, I am a manly man. And if I get into a bad situation, I will say something like, Leon McDuff and Cursed Be He who cries, first hold enough. In fact, what I said was, they got me. Like every rotten black and white Western you've ever seen in your life. That, that, that was my great manly utterance, you know? So, so we got away and down to a little town. We got off the freeway, and they were shooting at us, following us. You know, you could see the wow. flashes coming from the car, yeah. And we got this little town and we, what we did, we called the cops and this sheriff came down and he looked over the car and he looked over us and he pulled out his gun and he threw us in jail. And, uh, it, you know, it's just a different, cause he called somebody, I don't know who he called, but he called somebody and he said, I got some boys who have been shot up. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Really? Next thing we knew we were in jail, right? And um, the next day we were taken where we were shot up is a town right across the border from Oklahoma, so we were taken to Oklahoma because I think they figured out maybe they'd made a mistake here and uh, but there's nothing better than getting somebody across state lines, right So we went to another town, little town called Salisaw, where they threw us in another jail. Now, Salisaw is the home of the of the uh, the jones as in Steinbeck's novel *Grapes Grape of Wrath*, oh, okay. and the sheriff, sheriff was the brother of Pretty Boy Floyd. He was one of the great gangsters on the 30s. Yeah, you know, so it was it was a pretty pretty good thing. And we we they locked us up. They wouldn't let us call. And a week later, by lying to the jailer, I got a call out, and wasn't 20 minutes after that, the sheriff came in. Now we were all shot up, you know, and sheriff came in had been a week, said, Hey, these boys are hurt. Take them down to the hospital. So off we went, right? And we found out later that what had happened was my parents called the newspapers, called our college, and and the uproar started. Apparently 20 minutes after my call got out, newspapers started calling and but the kicker of this and there really is a kicker, is that the the governor of Minnesota called. Governor of the state. Wow. Yeah, and apparently what he said is, look, we know you've got those boys down there. We know you've got them. They hadn't better be hurt. And so they took us to a a hearing. I mean, they they told newspaper reporters we'd had a gun battle with police and they couldn't find a gun, so then they said we we had robbed somebody with a knife. They couldn't find a knife, so then they finally said we robbed them with a bottle of Coca-Cola, you know, threatening with a the bottle. There were a lot of beer bottles in the car, I'll grant you, but no Coca-Cola bottle. So we go to this hearing again. I don't know who they were. There was a local lawyer and somebody else, some sort of magistrate. And by this time we had a lawyer, and our lawyer said, well, when do you want these boys back? I mean, they were accusing us of stuff, right? And he said, they have an Easter break. We would like to not interrupt their schooling. And the magistrate said, well, Easter's kind of a bad time. You know, my daughter comes home and everything. And I'm thinking, welcome to the court system, right? And and the local attorney's hopping around. He finally took us outside and he said, will you people get the hell out of here? He said, your car is right here. He said, go get in your car and leave and be gone by nightfall. And I thought this was not a, a thinly veiled thing saying, don't be around here at night. So we left and I tell you, it it was one incidence. Got shot at and got shot once. And there are soldiers who have been at war for a long time, but even so it bothered me. You know, I'd wake up at night, you know, and be seeing the mu- muzzle flashes and all that. So I finally found out the president of our college had been the one called governor. And then who called the jail. And think of the enormous political capital they we were risking. What if we had done something, right? So I asked for an appointment and I went to see the president of the college. And it was really bothering me. And I said, Why did you do that? You were risking so much. You didn't know if maybe we'd done something. And you know, I thought I thought he was gonna say something like, Well, you dated my daughter a couple times, which I did, I might add. Hey, you're good boys and blah, blah. But he didn't. He got up and he went to the window and stood staring at it for a while. When he turned back, he was weeping. And he told me that he had escaped from Nazi Germany with his brother. And all the rest of his family was killed. He was Jewish. They were murdered. All of them, including his mother, who was the senior uh, contralto singer in the uh, Warsaw Opera. Big deal, right? And he just looked at me and he said, "I didn't care about the risk." He said, "I promised myself years ago that I would never stand by." That was it. And um, I think he saved our lives.
0: I think he did too.
1: Yep. So, and that pretty much changed my view about that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I would. Uh, I would imagine it. It would. Yeah. I mean that's a that's a very compelling story. Maybe is that in your book?
1: It is. It's called "The Day They Tried to Kill Us in Arkansas." And another shameless plug: stand back.
0: Tales oh no, from that the, that's a compelling day. story. Okay. It really is. You know, the thing, the thing is that a lot of us have. I have an interesting life, according to some people that I've met. They tell me that. I believe you do. I don't think so.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, people who have interesting lives, I, I think, don't think so. You
0: know? Yeah. It, <laughs> it changes every once in a while, and I do just some really, really stupid things. But
1: well, only in retrospect. <laughs> no, time.
0: I do, no, I know they're stupid when I do them. Sometimes too.
1: <laughs> that's a fun part. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so anyway, yeah. Most of the stories in the book I like to think are humorous. That one is not so funny. You know, if you got to jump, by all means, go ahead.
0: Uh, I don't. I don't know.
1: Is that is that Oprah calling about my book? No. <laughs> Good. And if anybody asks me, uh, you know, I think about me. I you know the position I want you to take is the guy looked just like Brad Pitt. It was unbelievable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we all do what we can and um and it it helps um to you know just be consistent. Reach out to somebody new every day if you can and keep plugging. I mean, yeah, that's, that's all it. you really can do.
1: That's it. Every day I get out of bed, my feet hit the floor. I say, hey, made it again. You know, here we go.
0: Yeah, made it again. Here we go. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure to have you uh, and really talk to it. you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this program. And obviously you did if you got to the very end. I would appreciate it very much if you would share this podcast with other folks that you know out there. And please, please leave me a review on iTunes. I really need to know that you exist. I really appreciate it. And I will be making another episode very shortly. Until then, adios.